Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, November 19th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner as we take a look at today's top stories. House Republicans move forward with a Hunter Biden probe. A special counsel is appointed to investigate Trump. Jeffries will run for House Democratic leader. Lake refuses the Arizona governor race and enlists legal support. Twitter locks out its staff after mass resignations. Remains of explosives are found at the Nord Stream blast sites. A Gaza residential building fire kills 21. The Biden government says that the Saudi crown prince is immune from the Khashoggi lawsuit. A Quebec man is charged with terrorism over a Haiti coup plot. And climate negotiations stalled on a loss and damage fund. In our top story today, House GOP moves forward with the Hunter Biden probe. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by ABC, New York Post, Daily Caller, Business Insider, and BBC News. After securing a majority in the House of Representatives following the midterm elections, Republicans on Thursday outlined their plans to investigate President Biden and his family's business dealings, especially those regarding the president's son, Hunter. James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, and Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, the respective incoming chairman of the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees, have led the charge against Biden. Comer said, quote, was Joe Biden directly involved with Hunter Biden's business deals and is he compromised? That's our investigation. The representatives alleged that both Hunter and Joe Biden partook in waste, fraud, and abuse regarding their business transactions. Comer said they'll focus on obtaining 150 suspicious activities reports from the Treasury related to Hunter Biden. Republicans also shared an email allegedly sent by Hunter that included the president as one of his, quote, business partners. A White House spokesperson stated, quote, instead of working with President Biden to address issues important to the American people, like lower costs, congressional Republicans' top priority is to go after President Biden with politically motivated attacks chock full of long debunked conspiracy theories. Hunter Biden is already under a federal investigation, but has so far not faced any charges. So those are the facts on this story. And on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. So here's our first narrative spin. It's a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. There's already plenty of evidence that Joe Biden has been involved in his troubled son's shady business dealings. And it's only fair to the American people that the situation is investigated. The Biden family's corruption seems quite clear, especially given that they became millionaires through proximity to high-ranking government officials. And when there's a Republican narrative, we're going to counter with a Democratic narrative. And it's courtesy of CNN. Republicans never miss an opportunity to showcase their hypocrisy and political theatrics at the expense of the American taxpayer. Though the GOP has seized on the suspicious activity reports, these aren't conclusive and don't necessarily indicate wrongdoing. Hunter has already been under investigation since 2018, and the FBI has yet to charge him with anything. From time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 42% chance that Hunter Biden will be indicted by November 5th, 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. 
You know, I would think that as we approach the holidays that uh, some of these tech companies would come out with new laptops, notebooks, and call it the Hunter Biden model. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> some people... <laughs> Hunter Biden edition. Right, the Hunter, right, right. Like they have the uh, the Eddie Bauer SUV for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think actually that's a good idea because some people would buy it out of solidarity. Oh, yeah. And then some people would buy it as like a gag gift. So you'd get it from both sides. <laughs> oh, you know, my it's, goodness. It's brilliant. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. A special counsel is appointed in the Trump investigations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, NBC News, Business Insider, The Daily Wire, CNN, and The Wall Street Journal. Following Donald Trump's re-election campaign announcements, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday appointed a special counsel to oversee the investigations into both the January 6th riots and confidential documents seized from Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Garland appointed Jack Smith, a formal federal prosecutor who currently works at The Hague, to begin immediately. He was previously the chief of the Department of Justice's Public Integrity Section, overseeing public corruption and election-related cases. Smith, a political independent, began his career as an assistant district attorney in New York, almost 30 years ago, before serving as the U.S. attorney for its Eastern District. Before returning to the DOJ in 2010, he also investigated war crimes at the International Criminal Court from 2008 to 2010. Amid concerns about the appearance of a conflict of interest given a potential 2024 election race between Trump and Biden, Garland concluded that it is in the public's interest to appoint a special counsel. The DOJ has reportedly been gathering more information on both investigations and hopes to bring witnesses before a grand jury in the coming weeks, some of whom supposedly haven't yet been questioned regarding these investigations. According to sources familiar with past special counsels, Smith won't necessarily eliminate all concerns of conflict of interest, as Garland and other DOJ officials are still likely to play decision-making roles to some extent. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Three spins emerging, beginning with a pro-Trump narrative coming from PJ Media. Though it conveniently waited until after the midterm elections to do so, the liberal Washington Post has already acknowledged that the Mar-a-Lago documents weren't the dangerous nuclear codes they thought they'd be. This largely ignored finding will be the first of many similar ones as these investigations into Trump, whether through an independent counsel or not, will prove to be politically motivated shams just like all the others. Counter that with a Democratic narrative from the Washington Post. First and foremost, this move proves the legitimacy of these investigations. Secondly, appointing the nonpartisan Jack Smith was the perfect addition to an already robust probe into Trump's many nefarious activities. With Trump no longer able to cry witch hunt, the independent investigation can now proceed unhindered. And our friends at Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story, saying there's a 48% chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for U.S. President in 2024. And more political news as Jeffries announces his candidacy for House Democratic leader. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Axios, Fox News, and Reuters. On Friday, Republican Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, announced his bid to replace Nancy Pelosi as Democratic leader in the U.S. House, one day after the current House Speaker announced she would not be re-seeking the position. Jeffries, who, if elected, would become the first black leader of a political party in Congress in history. 
made his case for the post in letters sent to his colleagues outlining his plan for Democrats' move to House minority. So far, no one has stepped up to challenge Jeffries, Republican Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington, seen as a potential far-left candidate, has announced she will not throw her hat in the ring and instead will remain chairwoman of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Jeffries already received Pelosi's endorsement, as well as support from current House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, who said he wouldn't seek a leadership role in the upcoming Congress. A representative for parts of Brooklyn and Queens, the 52-year-old Jeffries is a former lawyer who served as House impeachment manager during former President Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. The House Democrats' leadership election will be held on November 30th. Thanks for the facts on that story, Eric. We have a Democratic narrative on this story from CNN. A new day is dawning, and Jeffries is the best person to lead the party forward, not just because of the historic nature of his ascension to the post of leader, but because of what he stands for. Jeffries will keep the caucus united and make sure it focuses both on legislating and working toward returning to the majority in 2024. And we counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Federalist. The Democrats aren't doing themselves any favors in their rush to make sure they make history with their leadership election. Jeffries is supposed to be a moderate establishment representative, but time and again, he's practiced identity politics to divide the nation, subscribing to every conspiracy theory attached to Republicans and former President Donald Trump. Well, if the past is any indicator of the future, and if Mr. Jeffries here ascends to this post, given how young he is, we're going to be hearing this guy's name a lot over the course of the rest of our lives, I feel like. Yeah, he's only 52. The average person hears about these people like 100 times a day. So mm-hmm. get yeah. you know buckle in and get ready to hear a lot about Hakeem Jeffries, I think. There'll be a laptop named after him next year. That's good. The Jeffries edition. I have both the Jeffries and the Hunter Biden edition. Yeah, I use both of them. I kind of use one for my writing and one for my, you know, my work. But yeah, I just kind of surf the web. But, you know, anything major I do do on the Hunter one, obviously. Lake won't concede the Arizona governor's race and enlists legal support. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, Daily Mail, The Guardian and Fox News. Carrie Lake, the Republican nominee in last week's Arizona gubernatorial election, vowed in a short video Thursday to challenge the official results of her loss to the Democratic Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs. She alleged that problems with voting machines led to long lines that disenfranchised significant numbers of voters. Lake, endorsed by Trump, discussed his controversial election claims as a major part of her campaign. She said in her video, For two years, I have been sounding the alarm about our election system in Arizona. Our election officials failed us miserably. What happened to Arizonans on Election Day is unforgivable. Lake also said she has hired the so-called best and brightest legal team to take action to question the legitimacy of her defeat. Polls had shown her with a lead heading into the November 8th election. Although there were equipment malfunctions at several polling places in Maricopa County, voters were still able to cast their votes. A Republican lawsuit to extend voting hours was rejected by a county judge on the grounds that there was no evidence voters were being disenfranchised. Lake also repeated her call for Hobbs to recuse herself from the election process. But even as Secretary of State, Hobbs is not responsible for counting ballots. You've heard the facts, and now we have three spins to talk about, beginning with a pro-Trump narrative coming from PJ Media. If Lake believes there was a questionable action that led to her defeat, then she should exercise every avenue in her power. And if her top-notch legal team is willing to pursue this challenge, there must be something there. At the very least, 
Lake should shed light on an election system in Maricopa County that must be reformed. There's also a Republican narrative on this story coming from The Independent. Lake didn't lose because of problems with the election. She lost because she was a problematic candidate. She tried to sell Trumpism to the Arizona electorate. However, even in a year when the GOP did well in other races, Trumpism, with its election denial and absurd bashing of beloved Republican John McCain, was once again rejected. And we have a Democratic narrative coming from Alternet. How hypocritical is it that Lake is bemoaning the conditions voters had to endure? Where was she when black and other minority communities were calling for national minimum standards for how elections should be conducted? She was silent and stood alongside the mostly white, mostly GOP politicians that claimed the election system was fine. It's time for her to leave the political scene completely. In our next story, Twitter locks out staff after mass resignations. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, CNN, Business Insider, and Fox News. Twitter has told employees that the company's office buildings will be temporarily closed. Large numbers of staff have reportedly quit after new owner Elon Musk issued an ultimatum to work, quote, long hours at high intensity or leave. The departures include many engineers responsible for maintaining the platform. With the temporary closure of its offices, multiple users began to issue predictions about the end of the social media giant. Twitter's workforce had until 5 p.m. Eastern Time Thursday to decide whether to be part of Musk's new regime or effectively resign. Internal communications were reportedly filled with employees posting the salute emoji after the deadline, indicating they had chosen to leave. Employees were asked to refrain from, quote, discussing confidential company information on social media with the press or elsewhere. It's thought less than half of employees chose to stay. The closure of Twitter's offices comes about a week after Musk ended remote work. Unconfirmed reports claimed roughly 75% of Twitter's remaining employees resigned at the deadline. If true, it's believed the company would have shrunk by 88% in only a month. Thanks for the facts, Eric. We have a right narrative spin on this story coming from Newsweek. The current Twitter tantrum by the woke, laptop-wielding left is bizarre to average blue-collar workers. Jobs should have high standards, and most people simply don't have the choice to storm out. Musk is trying to run a business, and the chaos surrounding Twitter and its employees has only made the left seem even further estranged from the working reality of the average American. The left narrative is courtesy of iNews. Musk has continued to make one chaotic decision after the other since taking control of Twitter, and his refusal to see the failings in his plans highlights his misunderstanding of the company. Ironically, Many are leaving the platform that Musk has stated he wished to be used by all. Even if Musk continues to deny it, the bubble has burst at Twitter. And this nerdy story has a nerd narrative as well. This one says there's a 71% chance that Twitter will experience an outage of more than 60 minutes before mid-2023, according to the Metaculous prediction community. Hmm. 60 minute outage doesn't seem like that long, but in uh, social media time, that's like a thousand years, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like the Dark Ages. It is like the Dark Ages, yeah. And now we turn our focus to the conflict in the Ukraine as we reach day 268 of the fighting. Remains of explosives are found at the Nord Stream blast sites, according to a Swedish prosecutor. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Metro News, Reuters, Pravda, TASS, Ukraine Form, and the Donetsk News Agency. 
The Swedish prosecutor probing explosions that hit the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines in September confirmed on Friday that they were caused by gross sabotage and said the remains of explosives have been discovered at the sites. The Office of Public Prosecutor Mats Linkvist stated, During the crime scene investigations, extensive seizures were made and the area has been carefully documented. Analyses that have now been carried out show traces of explosives on several of the foreign objects that were found. The statement made no mention of suspects and said that Lundquist wouldn't be available for media questioning. Earlier, without providing evidence, Russia's defense ministry blamed specialists from Britain's Royal Navy for the blasts, an allegation that the UK denies. Meanwhile, as Russia continued to strike Ukraine's energy infrastructure throughout the week, President Zelensky said more than 10 million people were without electricity as of Thursday night. By Friday, energy was reportedly restored nearly everywhere, except to roughly 300 customers near the front line. On Thursday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters that the strikes on energy infrastructure were a consequence of Ukraine's failure to engage in negotiations. The unwillingness of the Ukrainian side to resolve the problem and to enter into negotiations, according to Peskov, is one of the root causes of the consequences. Meanwhile, renewed Russian attacks were recorded in the regions of Sumy, Dnipropetrovsk, and the West Bank of Kherson, where one civilian was reported killed. One civilian was also killed, and four more were injured in the Donetsk region. Ukrainian officials added that the death toll from a Wednesday strike on the region of Zaporizhia has risen to nine. Elsewhere, separatist officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, reported that one civilian was killed and four more were injured over the past day in Ukrainian attacks. Scott, thanks for the update and the facts of that story. Three spins emerging, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from CNBC. Russia's deliberate targeting of energy infrastructure, which is unnecessarily increasing the suffering of civilians, amounts to war crimes. This ongoing Russian barbarity must be confronted. And we have a pro-Russian narrative from TASS. Attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure are a direct consequence of the failure of the country's leadership to meaningfully engage in peace talks. These attacks will stop once a more sober position is reached. And our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community giving us a nerd narrative for this story, and they say there is a 40% chance that Vladimir Putin will be charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court before 2024. And a tragic story coming out of Gaza as a residential building fire kills 21. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, New York Post, France 24, Jerusalem Post, ABC, and Guardian. On Thursday, a fire erupted during birthday celebrations in a Gaza apartment, spreading quickly through the four-story building in Jabalia refugee camp. At least 21 people were killed, including many children, and several others were injured. An initial investigation revealed that large amounts of gasoline had been stored at the site. No one inside the residence survived. The densely populated Gaza Strip has been under Israeli blockade since 2007, leaving the electricity supply sparse and forcing Gazans to seek alternative sources for cooking and light. It's not unusual for families to store cooking gas, diesel, and gasoline in their homes. The Palestinian Authority called on Israel to open its border crossing with Gaza to allow for the evacuation of those injured. Israel granted the request via its defense minister, Benny Gantz, who tweeted, quote, Israel will be right to help residents of Gaza who were harmed in order to save lives. Three generations tragically succumbed in the flames. A couple their five sons and one daughter, 
two daughters-in-law, and 11 grandchildren. Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, offered condolences to the families of the dead, calling the incident a national tragedy and announcing a day of mourning. Thank you for those facts, Eric, on this tragic and hard-to-hear story. We have a pro-Palestine narrative coming from the New York Times. Israel is responsible for this tragedy due to its inhumane 15-year blockade of Gaza. The blockade affected the speed at which firefighters could battle the fire, as there are restrictions or bans for bringing equipment and machinery. This was an avoidable catastrophe. And a pro-Israel spin being provided by Times of Israel. Israel has expressed its sympathy for the serious disaster and immediately offered to support Palestinians in the humanitarian evacuation. This is a tragic event, and Israel will provide life-saving medical aid to Gaza residents. And we have a narrative C on this story coming from Al Jazeera. Due to the geopolitical situation in Gaza, local civil defense services aren't adequately equipped to tackle such emergencies effectively. Both Israel and Palestinian authorities need to work together to prioritize public safety when these incidents occur. And staying in the Middle East, the U.S. claims that the Saudi crown prince should get immunity from the Khashoggi lawsuit. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by ABC News, The Guardian, DW, Associated Press, Reuters, and The Washington Post. On Thursday, the Biden administration announced that Saudi Crown Prince and Prime Minister Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, should be granted immunity in a lawsuit against him over the 2018 killing of dissident Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. In a court filing late Thursday, the U.S. State Department said that MBS, appointed Prime Minister in September, now qualifies as a sitting head of government, which would grant him immunity from legal action under customary international law. According to the State Department, the administration's decision to shield MBS from the jurisdiction of U.S. courts was purely a legal determination and not a judgment on the merits of the present suit. The request, however, is non-binding, meaning a judge will ultimately decide whether the crown prince can be prosecuted. Hatice Senghiz, Khashoggi's ex-fiancé, and Democracy for the Arab World Now, or DAWN, a Khashoggi-founded human rights organization, filed the lawsuit against MBS and other Saudi officials in a federal district court in Washington. Khashoggi was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in October 2018. While the U.S. intelligence community concluded that the crown prince ordered the operation, MBS denied any involvement. During his 2019 presidential campaign, Biden promised to make the Gulf state's de facto ruler a pariah over Khashoggi's murder. In July, however, he visited Saudi Arabia for the first time since taking office amid the impact of the Ukraine war and U.S. sanctions against Russia on the global energy market. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story and two spins, beginning with establishment critical narrative coming from Middle East Eye. When MBS was appointed prime minister by royal decree, it was obvious that the main purpose was to protect him from prosecution for Khashoggi's murder. By now seeking to grant the crown prince immunity, the U.S. is compromising its values and turning its back on its promise of accountability, proving that it isn't concerned with human rights and justice, but only with its own interests. And we have a pro-establishment narrative from Mint. Of course, the U.S. would like to see justice served in Khashoggi's case. The decision to grant immunity to MBS as the new Saudi Arabian prime minister is strictly a legal matter, not a political statement. The fact that Washington even-handedly applies the head of state immunity doctrine to the crown prince distinguishes the U.S. as a democracy based on the rule of law. Turning our attention to Canada as police charge Quebec man with terrorism over alleged Haiti coup plot. 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Washington Post, Global, BBC News, Guardian, and CBC. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, announced on Thursday that Gerald Nicholas, a 54-year-old resident of Levis, Quebec, will face terrorism charges for allegedly planning a terrorist act to overthrow Haiti's then-president Jovenel Moise. Canadian police have stated that the accused, who is charged with leaving Canada to facilitate terrorist activities, facilitating a terrorist activity, and providing property for terrorist purposes, sought to stage an armed revolution in Haiti and ultimately seize power. If convicted, Nicholas could face up to 14 years in jail for the first two counts and a maximum 10-year sentence for the third. He is also alleged to have visited multiple countries in the Caribbean and South America to, quote, recruit, finance, and also acquire weapons, but was reportedly unable to obtain the weapons he was seeking. In a CBC interview on Thursday, he denied the charges and argued that a former lover had fabricated them by claiming that a humanitarian aid shipment he sent to Haiti, where his half-sister lives, contained illegal materials. RCMP Sergeant Charles Poirier explained that Nicholas, who is expected to appear in court in Quebec City on December 1st, isn't in custody as he doesn't pose a threat to Canadians. Poirier added that the investigation is unrelated to the July 2021 killing of Jovenel Moise. Thank you for the facts, Eric. Global News gives us narrative A. Nicholas fraternized with individuals engaged in taking part in a coup against the Haitian government and actively planning an armed revolution with the ultimate aim of seizing power. While this isn't a typical case, it shows that Canada is committed to holding its citizens accountable even if they break the law in foreign countries. Thank you, Scott. Narrative B coming from Guardian. Nicholas maintains his innocence and hasn't yet been found guilty of any of the allegations against him. He has asserted that the Levis authorities are pursuing charges against him based on a story fabricated by his dejected ex-girlfriend. Nicholas has also vehemently claimed that he was only a Canadian citizen sending humanitarian packages to Haitians in need and has even accused the police of racial discrimination. He should be treated as innocent until proven otherwise. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says that there's a 50% chance that Haiti will become a World Bank upper-middle-income country by January of 2050. And that's according to the Metaculus prediction community. I swear, more dejected ex-girlfriends are blamed on stuff than anything else. These, you know, case by case, but they can't be all of them. I'm going to bite my tongue on this one, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) And our final story, negotiations stall at COP27 on the loss and damage fund. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, The Guardian, and New York Times. COP27 is expected to last beyond its Friday deadline and into the weekend as negotiations between rich and poor nations over a reparations fund remain undecided. The latest version of the framework released on Friday has been criticized for being lengthy, unclear, and vague. The agreement doesn't provide or propose a solution to the controversial issue of loss and damage. The framework would provide a financial arrangement aimed at compensating developing nations that are suffering from climate change impacts. Wealthier nations have delayed the agreement, questioning if it is necessary, and if so, how it will be administered. The proposal released Friday, launched on behalf of the EU, is said to have considered the concerns of the G77, a group of developing countries who would be the targeted group to receive funding. At COP26, Scotland was the only participant to commit $2.2 million to the so-called loss and damage fund. This year, the fund was placed on the agenda with support from nations like Barbados. Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley described this as a significant achievement and one that we have been fighting for many years. We have a moral and just cause. 
German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock praised the EU-drafted framework, stating, We're making it clear that Europe is on the side of the most vulnerable states. Wealthy nations are said to have been responsible for emitting half of the planet-warming gases since 1850, and have generally avoided committing to helping poorer nations recover from climate-related disasters over fears of unlimited liability. Those were the facts, and we have three spins that have been generated from this story. And the first one is a pro-establishment narrative courtesy of LA Times. Climate change and the subsequent impacts are a global problem. The solution will undoubtedly have to be a global fix that requires every nation, rich and poor, to change its behaviors to mitigate risks. Will it be expensive? Absolutely. But the cost of inaction is greater in terms of the loss of life, the loss of tangible items, and the sustainability of humanity. The solution is something the entire international community should get behind. The Guardian gives us the establishment critical narrative. Not only are the wealthy countries the cause of the worst impacts brought by climate change, but they also refuse to support those that need it the most financially. The EU is putting more onus on India and China in this draft, with the intent of causing rifts among developing nations. The most impoverished countries have every right to be frustrated with these machinations and delays. And we have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast, and it says there is a 50% chance that the average global temperature in 2100 will be 2.54 degrees Celsius higher than the average global temperature in 1880. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, November 19th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.